This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Barstow, and I am blessed to hold the Riva and David Logan Distinguished Chair in Investigative Journalism, which is a very fancy way of saying I also get to run the investigative reporting program here. And we're here tonight to talk about Jackpot, a book that explores one of the great issues of our time, income inequality. And we are so lucky to be joined in person here tonight by the book's author, Michael Mechanic. Um, Michael is a longtime senior editor. (laughs) Yes, please applaud. Is a longtime senior editor at Mother Jones, where he writes and edits everything from blog posts to award-winning essays and feature stories. Born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin, let's hear it for the Badgers, he earned an undergraduate degree in biochemistry from UC Berkeley and a master's in cellular and developmental biology from Harvard, otherwise known as the Berkeley of the Northeast, before returning to Berkeley Journalism for a master's in journalism. Michael has run his own record label. Um, He has served as the managing editor for the East Bay Express and a senior writer for the Industry Standard. He's been honored for, among other things, a Mother Jones story about a reality TV show whose contestants were subjected to solitary confinement and other torments for the chance to win $50,000. That's a story I'd like to read. Michael lives with his family in Oakland, and Jackpot is his first book. Welcome back to Berkeley, Michael. And welcome also to our audience. And we also have a big online audience. Can I ask everyone, please, 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 to silence your cell phones because um, we are, we are, uh, we are streaming. My plan tonight is to have a conversation with Michael for about forty minutes, to leave plenty of time for some questions at the end, um, and uh, and then I think um, uh, for those of us on YouTube, um, there's going to be a, a method for you to submit your questions uh, via the comments, and we'll get to as many as we possibly can. Um, And then afterwards, I believe Michael will be happy to sign some books and maybe sell a few too. I hope you've brought a secret stash with you. Um, And uh, so with that, let's let's dive in. Um, Oh my gosh, I love this subject. So most of us, um, I think think probably all of us understand that income inequality is getting worse. But one of the revelations in your book is that our intuitive sense of the problem is way out of kilter with the actual scale of the problem. And I kind of wondered whether that's where we would start. And I, and I, would, I, I hoped I might lure you into giving our audience a bit of a quiz to test their knowledge of how bad the problem of income inequality is. Sure. Um- I, I will preface that with telling you about an experiment that was done in 2011 by two psychologists, one Harvard guy, one guy at Duke, uh, Dan Ariely and Michael Norton. And they wanted to find out what Americans felt about the distribution of wealth in their country and, and what, would be, what they felt would be fair. 
And so the first thing they did is showed them pie charts of different wealth distributions. One was the US wealth distribution, one was Sweden's, which was more progressive. And one was perfect inequality, so every 20% of the population got 20% of the wealth. And they didn't tell them, you know, Sweden or US, they just showed them the pie charts and said, which of these two countries, if you were randomly placed in them, which one would you want to live in? And interestingly, people weren't interested in perfect equality. I mean, it, you know, you, know, you work hard, you're, you're smart, you, you put in the hours, you deserve to get paid more, right? But, but how much more, right? So uh, when they showed people uh, the US distribution versus Sweden's distribution, and this is like 5,000 Americans they're talking about, 90% uh, of them chose Sweden. 90% Democrat and Republican. And so um, the second phase of the experiment, they asked them what, uh, you, know, you know, for every you know, wealth category, every 20% of the population, how much of the national wealth should they own in an ideal world, in a fair world? And how much do you think they re really own? And people were way off, like crazy way off. Um, and instead of telling you what the results were, why don't I just ask, who, here's, raise your hand if you have not read the book. Okay, how about you? What an honest room. <laughs> how about you? Um, I, I looked up the numbers, uh, real-time inequality numbers on Gabriel Zuckman's site. And so this is 2022 numbers. Um, what percentage of the national wealth is owned by the top 10%? the wealthiest 10% of Americans. What percentage of the national wealth? 74. Um, what percent is owned by the top 1%? 40. Close, 37. And what about the top 1 tenth of the top 1%? 19, see now you're guessing high. <laughs> okay, well let's, let's look at the other end. Um, the, the least wealthy 40% of the population is 165 million people or, or some thereabouts. Uh, how much of the national wealth does the least wealthy 40% of the population? The bottom 40%. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's ask someone else, would you? 20%? Zero. No assets whatsoever. And that's only possible because the bottom 20% owns less than nothing. They're in debt. So if you're in the 24th, I put this in the book, but if you're in the 24th wealth percentile in America, you, you have $199 to your name, enough to buy a Home Depot grill if you're lucky. Holy cow. Yeah. Okay. Now, all right. So the cover of your book is right up there on screen. Here it is right here. It's a gorgeous looking book. Um, and the subtitle is How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. But wait a minute. I feel like I can hear Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates all <laughs> shrieking somewhere in the distance about how they're using their wealth to save the world mm. and how they're better at allocating money than any government bureaucrat. So, so, so why are they wrong? Well, they're not better at allocating money. They're better at running a business. I mean, the government is not running a business. But they're saving the world. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> but the government is neither running business nor running a charity. I mean, I've talked talk to a lot of wealthy people who said, the government makes a terrible charity. And I said, well, the government's not a charity. It's not its purpose. But Bill Gates is running around solving big, giant healthcare problems and 
there, there has been some recent research on philanthropy, which is a whole can of worms we could okay. get into. <laughs> like, uh, you can hear, like, this is the pushback. The pushback is... Oh, yeah, yeah of course, you're going to get the pushback. Uh, but when you look at the actual numbers, the, what's the so-called big bets in the society? Mm -hmm. These are the, the big philanthropic gestures where people are giving 10 million and up. And there was a big study of this recently of what happened with these, where these big bets went. And if you look at the public statements of the philanthropists, they, they were very you know, aspirational. We want a social justice and economic justice and you know, feed the world and things like this. But it turns out most of these big bets were going to you know, another building at Harvard or uh, give to the medical center that's a very wealthy medical center as opposed to one that's serving you know, underserved communities. Uh, so there's a real disconnect between what people say publicly and what they're actually doing. And but, also they're, but, they're, but they're Elon giving Musk you know, is taking 1 all of, of the his wealth. money right now and he's going to fix Twitter. Oh, well, yeah. For us. I mean, it'd be great. I mean, he's let, he's going to let Donnie back on there. But that's the argument. What what He's helping exactly? the journalism world to do. <laughs> oh, no, but like you know, I, I think I can also hear the ghostly distant shrieks of Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand and the entire Wall Street Journal editorial board about how the rewards of great wealth and the, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of, uh, that they're essential to innovation and risk-taking uh, you know, you really that, any you, healthy yeah. system of capitalism. You, so like, what would you want them to take from this book? Look, you hear that argument when people are saying why capital gains taxes should be lower than right. wage taxes. I mean, we pay, what the maximum is 37% on earnings from your job, and it's 20% on earnings, profits from the big pile of money that you have and invested in the stock market. And is, you know, is that fair or reasonable? Well, people say, well, it provides incentive for people to build companies and to invest and so forth. And I say, you know, what are you going to do with your money? If, if, uh, if we made capital gains taxes as high as wage taxes, are you going to put your money under your mattress? I mean, you're still going to invest. You're still going to start. That's what these people do. I mean, that's what drives them. You know, you're not going to just go, oh, well, I'm just going to sit by the pool now. One of, the, one of the ideas that you surface in this book is that huge wealth is often harmful to those who hit the jackpot, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, so, for example, one of your characters is... James Everingham, who's a kind of middle-class coder who became this instant millionaire. And along with all of his colleagues at Netscape, when the company went public, and they called themselves Mozillionaires. Yeah, the Mozillionaires. <laughs> the Mozillionaires. Because it, it was the Mozilla project that led to the first um, the, the Netscape yeah. Navigator browser. I wonder if you wouldn't mind actually just reading uh, a passage describing what the experience was like for them. Sure. Um, yeah. So James Everingham, he came from sort of rural Pennsylvania. He was, you know, he flunked out of high school, flunked out of college, but he was a teen hacker. He was kind of like Matthew Broderick in War Games. <coughs> he was making software. He was obsessed with it, and he started. He was doing it an extracurricular way. He managed to build this library. Got the attention of some companies. Got hired. Um, moved up a little bit. Eventually, he got recruited to work at Netscape three months before the IPO in 1995. And the Netscape IPO was the first dot-com boom we saw. I mean, it was the first company that, that was listed and 
took off. And the entire tech world is going, whoa, check it out. Um, so that's the context for this. So, so overnight, overnight his, you know, his small amount of stock options from when he came in is worth $8.5 million today's dollars. And he's 29. And by the, you know, at the stock's peak, it would be worth $20 million. His stock options vested over four years, so the money didn't come all at once. Morgan Stanley, the IPO manager, called him one day. Hey, your cliff is up. What do you want us to do? Everingham told the banker to go ahead and sell the first chunk of stock and then promptly forgot all about the conversation. A week later, he went to the ATM to get some money out. His balance in today's dollars was more than $2 million. The highest balance I'd ever seen in there was probably $4,000, and this incredible stress hit me, he recalls. I almost passed out. Like, I don't know what to do with that. People at work started going a little nuts. One colleague ordered enough silly putty to fill his bathtub, literally. <laughs> because he could, Everingham says. He still rented a garage in Palo Alto. This is the only thing that he had bought. He was worth probably $30 million right out of college. Colleague Lou Montuli, whose office aquarium featured one of the web's first live cams, bought a massive new 350-gallon tank for the office and went snorkeling in it. Some Mozillionaires bought decked out campers and began to live in the parking lot. Nobody knew what to do with their windfalls and the company wasn't helping, so they turned to one another. How are you managing it? How are you dealing with people? Because the people thing, well, the whole tech world was watching Netscape's stock price and some of Everingham's old buddies felt put out. A couple of my closest friends completely stopped talking to me, he says. New acquaintances came around, and pretty women. They'd never noticed him before that. It was just like in the old blues songs. Suddenly, everybody was his friend, which was kind of fun, but also super disconcerting. Even things that seemed simple turned out not to be. For instance, Everingham got excited after the IPO, so he went out and bought a Nissan Maxima for his mother, who had never owned a new car. He later learned that his brother had gotten depressed about this and had gone to their mom and apologized because he hadn't ever been able to do something so nice for her. I'm like, oh shit, I didn't think about how that's going to make him feel, Everingham says. The Nasdaq roller coaster made matters worse. The stock would shoot up suddenly. You're doing the math and you're like, that can't be. That's millions of dollars. He would get a number in his head, the number at which he would no longer need to work. And then it goes right below that. Damn, I have to work. And then it shoots back up and I'm like, oh, now I don't have to work. Then a week later, damn. But not needing to work begets a sort of existential crisis. The Mozillionaires, some of whom never would have been friends had they not bonded over their shared trauma, talked about this a lot. One Mozillionaire decided he would go become a photographer. He came to me after three or four years of being lost, Everingham says, and he's like, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. And I'm like, what? He goes, that I don't have to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> it's, um some nice writing there. <laughs> Congratulations. But you also, I, 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 you, you come to a different version of this same idea um, when you write about Martha, who hit the jackpot in a completely different way mm. through this massive inheritance, right? So sort of a different angle. And it wasn't easy for her either. So read a little bit of that, because I think this sets up a, a, a bit of conversation I wanted to explore. Yeah, I would say it was less easy for her because it, it tends to be less easy for people who inherit. Mm -hmm. As one, one of the source I talked to said, there's sort of a vagueness about their lives. There's a, 
knowing that you're going to come into a lot of money. Now, Martha knew she had a rich grandfather. Uh, she, she was third generation. But her family was not ostentatious. They were pretty low-key. I'd say she was raised upper middle class. And it was also family culture not to ask or talk about you know, their grandfather's company or the money. They just, it just wasn't something they talked about. So she was totally unprepared for this. So I'll, I'll read a little bit about telling you how she felt. Toward the end of high school, Martha was set up with an account to cover her college expenses. Her mother said she would be getting some small cap shares. Martha didn't know what that meant, but she came to understand that the money that appeared in her account as if by magic was something called dividends from funds administered by her grandfather's financial company. She attended an elite East Coast college, paying her way from the account. After graduating, she worked in publishing and then briefly as a teacher before earning a master's degree in creative writing. So she's an author now. The money kept flowing all the while. It accumulated in her account throughout her 20s as she honed her writerly skills and into her 30s. By that time, the balance was substantial, though not insane, definitely less than a million dollars. It was enough to buy a very nice house one day, Martha figured. She and her brother sometimes compared notes and scratched their heads about all this money they were getting. The quarterly statements would arrive in the mail and Martha would glance at them and shove them in a drawer. The number would seem unrelated to me, she recalls, but the number kept, kept getting bigger. By the late 90s, it was growing by perhaps $200,000 a year. And then, quite abruptly, something changed with the distribution of dividends. In 2001 or 2002, without warning or explanation, the figures exploded. Martha's annual income was no longer a couple hundred grand. It was millions. Martha, I'm skipping ahead. Martha was woefully unprepared when, in her late 30s, she learned the whole truth. About a month before we met, at a meeting with her mother's estate lawyer, she was handed a document that made her relive the moment of revelation. The document included all the details about the trusts her mother had set up for Martha and her brother. It also showed the value of another trust they stood to inherit from their uh, they stood to inherit, in addition to the tens of millions of dollars they'd already received. The number was shockingly large. Martha is reluctant to re reveal it, and when she does, she declares that it is never to leave this room. She seems upset. I ask her what it's like to say the number out loud. Shameful. It's shameful, she says, her blue eyes welling with tears. And it makes me want to cry, because this is the fantasy. I've got the fantasy in my fucking drawer. You're going to be showered with gold. How can that be anything but the best news? Her fortune hangs over her like a cartoon anvil. It's practically a daily battle to put it down so I can actually write my books, she says. I feel like I have a train coming at me. That's how I feel about it. Wow. That's amazing. Um, how, I have to ask you, I, I really wondered, how on earth did you, how hard was it to get people to talk about extreme wealth? Hard. Or was it to find them and then to like <laughs> convince them? You know, to uh, really open I'd say up as you're, this. you know, we, we're, we're all, you know, it's taboo in our society to talk openly about your finances. And I think as you go up the income scale and the wealth scale, it becomes even more and more so. I mean, children of wealthy families are just told, you, don't, you never talk about it with anybody outside of your family. Right. Now, she didn't have anyone talk in her family to talk about it with, right? Except for her husband who was ended up being, well, there was her fiance when she learned all this, 
and it created a lot of tensions in her marriage, and they ended up getting divorced. And part of the problem was, you know, he got obsessed with finding out more and more and more about, you know, he wanted to know more about the mystery of her wealth than she did. And so he would pressure her and so forth. So, I mean, you run into these, you run into a lot of problems in relationships when one person has way more money than the other. Did it, did it surprise you the degree to which people were ending up kind of miserable? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, they're not. This. I mean, we sort of hear about like yeah. the lottery winner who ends up broke and um, we've, we've, I think probably all of us have heard those stories of lottery winners who somehow don't end up happy, happily ever after. Right, that's the conventional wisdom. And I, know I can't really say that it's true for all lottery winners by okay. any means. I mean, I would, you know, I would say there's a subset of them okay. that it completely destroys their lives. But those are the ones we hear about, right? We don't hear about the person who is living within their means and has a nice boring life and you know, a nice house. And, um, so, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, I just wondered, like, you know, as you, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, succeeded in getting people to start actually talking about the taboo of extreme wealth, you know, I, it, I have this sense that you were yourself a little bit taken aback at the unexpected ways. I mean, this is our dream, right? This is Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like the dream, and the dream is really qualified because there, there are, you know, money, when you have a lot of it, it becomes a big responsibility, and it becomes, it raises a lot of thorny questions of, you know, of things like inheritance. You give it to your kids. How much do you give? Your kids going to resent you for not giving them a big chunk of change. Um, you know, you you worry about how you're going to be perceived, and you are perceived differently. I mean, one of um, one question I ask most people that I talk to, most wealthy people, I said, "Do you think money changes people?" And one of the stock answer was, "Well, it amplifies your personality. If you're a terrible person, it makes you awful, and if you're a great person, it." gives you the means to do great good in the world. But you know, personally, wealth can be really isolating because people with a lot of money don't want to hang around with people with no money, um, except for maybe very old friends, and even then it can be awkward. But you don't want to live in the same community, you're, you know, your sort of middle class community, where all of a sudden you have $50 million because how are you going to enjoy your wealth when, without looking like a jerk, right? You can't put a Bentley in your you know, in your driveway. Well, okay, speaking of Bentleys, all right, so <laughs> so you succeed, you're such a good writer that you really did make me start to feel some empathy for your characters here. And yet then you have this maddening habit of um, <laughs> taking us on these tours of conspicuous consumption. And suddenly, my 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 empathy kind of starts to melt away. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind reading, giving the audience just a taste of some of those passages. Yeah, there is a there is a, a chapter called Retail Therapy, which I sort of take people on a tour of some of the ridiculous things you can buy with this kind of wealth. Um, this is a real short bit. I, I hung out with a. Um, brand manager at Walnut Street, Wal Walnut Creek Luxury Cars. Uh, he doesn't call himself a salesman. In fact, he says, I hate car salespeople. Uh, he's really a salesperson, but, <laughs> but there's no customers coming in because it's all done. They'll, they'll bring the cars to the St. Francis Yacht Club or to, uh, you know, Exo Jets um, gala or whatever. So 
put the fancy car in front of the people who don't know they want it yet. That, that's sort of their strategy. They take the cars to the rich people. Okay, so this is just a little bit. You know, so people customize these cars to the T. Uh, he was telling me how at the Rolls-Royce factory in London, they have on display a lipstick. That's because this guy wanted a Rolls-Royce that matched his wife's favorite lipstick color. So he sent in the lipstick, and they matched the color of the lipstick. And so it's, the lipstick is there on display. Uh, and he also, you know, if, you, if this guy's saying, if you got a Hermes bag, you could send a sample of the leather in. They'll paint the car that color for you. <clears throat> so this is right after I had been, in, you know, sitting inside a $520,000 Lamborghini. It was very hard to get into. And there's a driving mode called Ego. <laughs> we enter another showroom to visit the Bentleys. They drip wealth, elegant, imposing. In the center of the room is a Mulsanne, base price $360,000. But this customized Moliner edition is, is uh, $404,000. Its 6.25 liter twin turbo engine bears a plaque, hand built in Crewe, England, with the engine number and the name of the person, Steve Brown, who oversaw the fabrication. The supple dashboard leather is sourced from cows raised in barbed wire-free environments to avoid scratches. The floor mats are made from lamb's wool. The ultimate luxury, Christensen says, noting the polished wooden console's hand-stitched seats and door panels fitted with heavy chrome ashtrays for cigars or whatever. The, the car has massaging front and rear seats. Another backseat option is an illuminated handcrafted wooden cocktail cabinet complete with a pair of hand-blown crystal decanters designed for Moliner by the exquisite glassmaker David Redman of London, Bentley's website notes. Rolls-Royce's equivalent, the Phantom, starts at $450,000. Another $12,000 gets you the Starlight Headliner. Thousands of tiny LEDs embedded in the ceiling leather to approximate the night sky. The option is customizable. Rolls will configure the stars as they appeared on the day you were born. <laughs> Christensen, that's the guy, the, the sales guy, Christensen considers it a gimmick. But I will tell you, it's really, really tough to sell a Rolls-Royce now without the Starlight headliner. <laughs> um, you know, one of the, there's a, there was a moment that started to give me a little bit of hope um, in, this, in this book. Which one? And it's when you started to write about the, the this is a phrase I just love and won't get out of my head, the satiation point. Uh. <laughs> the point of diminishing returns. And you, you explain that researchers find that people's self-reported happiness peaks when they're making between sixty-five dollars and $95,000 a year, and that this, the life satisfaction scores kind of top off at around $105,000. And then they begin to decline with higher earnings. And I, I, I thought that was uh, quite interesting, and I didn't actually expect that it would be actually that low. I thought right. it would somehow you'd have to get up in the, the a few million before you hit that satiation point. I wonder um, if you maybe just read a little bit about what might account for the decline in happiness once you once you once you get past that certain point. Yeah, I mean you're right. It is it is low. It seems it feels very low, low right? right? I mean, I know a lot maybe of those people are... haven't hit old age yet and had big medical <laughs> bills. <laughs> right. But uh, 
I guess you know the idea is that you're you're not freaking out about your bills. You're you're paying your debts. You're you know you can kind of get along. Now <coughs> these people don't live in the Bay Area apparently. Because okay, yeah. It's okay. a million and a half for yes. a two bedroom house. Right. Um, but I'll tell you what the researchers wrote about the decline. And I, I just actually saw an article today in the Washington Post saying that life satisfaction scores are partially dependent on how unequal the society is. And the, yeah. the more wealth inequality, the lower people's generally life satisfaction scores. This is how you perceive how you're doing in life, um, as opposed to happiness and positive or negative emotions. While their data on very high earners was too limited to provide a complete picture, the researchers hypothesized that the decline may be related to heavier workloads, greater responsibilities, and time demands that limit higher earners' opportunities for enjoyment. Other factors, they wrote, may include increased materialistic values and social comparisons and unfulfilled material strivings. Wealth-related social comparisons are particularly toxic as they bring about feelings of inadequacy. Most of the search for wealth is not about how good the stuff is. It's about what the stuff says about how valuable of a person you are, says 41-year-old Sam Polk, whose memoir, For the Love of Money, recalls his days as a hedge fund trader on Wall Street. His moment of revelation, which prompted him to change careers, came when the fund he worked for offered him a $3.6 million year-end bonus, and he got angry. He felt he deserved six to eight million. <laughs> Polk was just seven years out of college. The guy who was giving me that bonus was literally taking home $400 million that year, he told me over appetizers at a Newport Beach restaurant. You live in this total myopic cocoon of other people that have this kind of money. <clears throat> Psychologist Bob Kenny, a founding partner of Northbridge Advisory Group in the Boston area, spends his days helping super-rich clients and their children grapple with their wealth anxieties. If anything, he says, affluent folks are at a small disadvantage when it comes to finding happiness. Because Americans tend to think that more money would solve their problems. Wouldn't it make things better if I had that house on the ocean, that mansion on the hill, if I just had something? Deep down, we believe that, Kenny says. But his clients don't have this fallacy to cling to. I say to people all the time, look, retail therapy works, but so does cocaine, he says. The problem is it wears off. When you go out and buy something and it's new and it's pretty, the latest iPhone or the Tesla, God, this is great. It just isn't sustainable. Not that you don't have enough money, but that it'll lose its kick. So you buy another one. I know a guy who bought three. iPhones, I asked. Teslas, Kenny replies. <laughs> His fourth car was a BMW convertible or something, and you wouldn't meet him and think, God, that is one happy guy. It seems to sort of explain why so often you hear about people who have made a huge amount of money who seem obsessed with one thing, which is making More an money. even huger <laughs> amount of money. You know, that, that's, a, that's another question that comes up, the how much is enough question. How much is and enough? And people who, especially people who have money, are always thinking about this, like investors say, at what point will I feel financially secure and I can just stop? But you hit that number, and how much is enough just goes up 10%. I mean, it, it's sort of a strange psychological thing. It's, we don't, we always feel like we need a little bit more than we'll be good. And that, that, that yeah. happens with billionaires. Yeah. You know, I wonder, I've always asked myself, what is a guy, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or any of these guys, they have so much money, they couldn't possibly spend it in 10 lifetimes, right? And yet, they're still trying to make more money. 
and why? 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 And I think it's just a scorecard at, at that point. It's just I, I want to, you know, I want to be the guy with the biggest yacht. It's Donald Trump calling up Forbes magazine and arguing to be higher up on the list. That's right. right? Yeah, Wilbur, um, Wilbur Ross, his uh, commerce secretary, yeah, also did that. Did the same thing, yeah, yeah. right? Um, I want to shift gears uh, for a moment and uh, play a commercial that I suspect many of you probably have encountered a bunch of times, especially if you watch CNBC. Um, I'm wondering if we can uh, tee that commercial up, and then uh, I think that will lead us to an interesting conversation. You can't just inherit 4,000 acres. Dad, I'm not saying that. Amanda, you'd get killed on the taxes. I was going to say there's a way I can buy the business. We set up a trust, and that's how we transfer the stock. But the estate taxes. There are no estate taxes. Let's run this by BDO. It was their idea. People who know, know BDO. Okay, first of all, quick show of hands. You can't just inherit 4,000 acres. Dad, I'm not saying. How many of you... Uh, have a grantor retained annuity trust because <laughs> that's what that is an ad for in fact um, and grats that's how they're um, affectionately known um, uh, is is exactly what's being um, pitched in that uh, advertisement and I wondered Michael if you would just just talk a bit about the booming business of wealth management and how that kind of fits into the overall picture of growing income inequality. You know what's funny? I actually, I showed that to an estate lawyer today. Mm-hmm. And I said, he was somebody I know, it was actually in the book. And I, and I said, what do you make of this? Like, is, there, is there a type of trust that would do this? And she said, I don't know that just a trust could do it. I mean, I think they're, they're fudging things a little bit. But there's, there's something called like an intentionally delayed grant or trust. And if you combine it with some, you know, a self-canceling something note, uh, then you could probably suss something out, right? I mean, th- there's, right. there's just this alphabet soup of weird trust vehicles that expensive lawyers have figured out how to hide money and shift it around in ways that are usually legal. Um, I mean, what happens is in these wealth lawyers, you know, they, may, they may not be super rich themselves, although they often, many of them get super rich uh, through charging clients a lot of money, but they just they get off on finding all the little nuances in the law and, oh, how can we tweak this, and testing all these new legal theories. And you know, the IRS is outmanned and outgunned by these smart lawyers, and so they're throwing spaghetti and see what sticks, right? Eventually, the IRS catches on. They take you to a tax court. If the tax court rules against you, they can appeal it. And these strategies you know, will save very, very wealthy people millions of dollars, billions in some cases. And so it behooves them to just keep pushing it in these courts because you know, they'll, they'll spend a bunch of money on legal fees, but if, they, if it pays off, it pays off big. Uh, and often it does. Now, the, the, what you're talking about, the grantor trusts, 
those are um, those were created by accident in 1990. There was another kind of trust called a grant or retained income trust, a grit. Grit. A grit. Yeah. There's and grits and grats. Grits and grats. And, and grats, you know, too. <laughs> and grats. Uh, grats. There's grats. Grats. Yeah. yeah grats. And so smart estate lawyers kind of figured out, oh, hey, you know, if the interest rates are right, we can use this grit to shave a bunch of points off the estate tax. And uh, the IRS caught on to it and was griping about it, and the tax people in Congress said, oh, we got, to, we got to do something about this. So they tried to fix it, and they screwed up. They opened up the avenue to a new kind of trust, the GRAT, which is just, it's, it's a no-risk situation. You can, you basically put low, you know, low-value assets in it, and it has a lifetime, and it, during that lifetime, it pays those assets back to you. But if the assets grow in value, the excess goes to your heirs tax-free. So it's out of your estate. It's not included in the estate tax. And this can be done. You can set up a whole series of these. Sheldon Adelson did it mm -hmm. with volatile stocks, and he, um, he avoided something like $3 billion in estate taxes. He used it to pass about $8 billion to his heirs. Uh, tax-free. Uh, when Facebook, you know, pre-IPO shares is one thing that people put in this, these all the time. Uh, when Facebook, in 2008, it was just sort of established before it went public, Mark Zuckerberg, Dustin Moskowitz, Sheryl Sandberg, it said in the SEC filings that they had each put like millions of shares into these annuity trusts. And some of these shares were six cents a piece. These were, you know, very, very early pre-IPO shares of Facebook. And now, you know, of course, they're worth a bloody fortune. So uh, those guys were able to pass millions, hundreds of millions, billions, possibly. You know, I don't know all the details of that. But, um, and, and ProPublica did some stuff on this recently. They found that yeah. they got some leaks, and they found that half of the wealthiest families in America are using these. So it's a big, you know. Okay, but let me ask you this. Like, how many of you know, um, let's just pick somebody. How about you, sir? As of today, how much money could you and a spouse give to your heirs without paying any taxes? With this graphing? No, no, just straight up. How much money could you give as a gift to your children without? $1,000,000. Really? Anyone else? How much? Okay, so, so you can give $15,000 a year to any person. I could give you 15000 you 15000 you 50, and it wouldn't be taxable as a gift. Anyone else? A couple can give $24 million as of 22, 2022. $24,000,000. That's the estate gift tax exemption. So that's like a lifetime gift. Like you can give that much without paying a dime. Michael, um, at one point in the book you write that um, we should have 105 black billionaires in this country, but instead we have seven, if you just went based on the By proportion the of the population. And meanwhile, when we look at the global population of people worth at least $30 million, men outnumber women by nine to one. And one thing I'd love for you to talk about is really just the demographics of the super wealthy, and even more importantly, the structural forces that help account for those demographics. Mm. 
Well, clearly they're mostly white guys, um, especially in this country. Uh, we have something like 750 billionaires. I don't know what the latest numbers are, uh, but you know, there's you know, people say there. Look, there's a lot of poor white people in America, and my answer to that is, of course there are. But you know, it wasn't being white that makes them poor. Um, Whereas if you're black in America, like intergenerational wealth and opportunity has been suppressed for you for so long, it's very, you know, it's much, you're much less likely to have a family cushion of wealth to push you forward. Uh, you know, white, in, in, the, in the most recent, um, uh, what is it called, the survey of consumer finances that the Fed does, uh, white people said, we're, we're three times more likely to have any kind of inheritance than black families were. And, you know, and those inheritances are also bigger. So um, starting, you know, there, there's in, I have a chapter on race and I have a chapter on gender. And what comes up in the chapter on race called Thriving While Black uh, is something called the black tax. And the black tax just refers to all the sort of systemic things from the Homestead Acts through redlining, through the Jim Crow laws, the black coats, all these things that in effect suppressed the opportunity for black people to accumulate wealth and pass it on to the next gener generation. And you see the same thing when you look at women. I mean, women were, of course, not allowed to work, <laughs> work in many professions for a long time. They were, you know, had, you had to stay at home. You, you couldn't, apart from being a teacher or a nurse, and that was only for single women, uh, you couldn't go and earn money. You certainly couldn't work in a bank or on Wall Street or anything like that. Uh, and even today, women have much greater challenge in getting money to start a business and borrowing money and getting money from a venture capital firm because it's a bunch of white guys sitting around a conference table and the bar is higher. And that's what people who are in the, you know, tech CEOs, female tech CEOs were telling me this. You know, you, you just have to prove yourself a lot more because even though the guys might be nice guys, there's sort of this innate feeling like, well, I, I know what an entrepreneur rock star looks like, and it's not you. And so you really have to prove to them that you're special in order to get the same kind of funding. I mean, if you look at hedge funds, alternative investments, cryptocurrency, all these emerging fields where people are making fortunes, and even you know the partnership level equity partners and law firms, it's it's still like ten percent women. And so, um, one thing that blew me away uh, is that up until 1974, a woman could not get a bank loan without her husband, a husband's co to co-sign it. So if you're a widow, if you were single, forget it. You know you can't start a business. I, I want to um, before we open it up for some questions here. I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Tracy Gary. Mm -hmm. Who is she? And more importantly, what did you learn from her? Tracy Gary lives in Tiburon, which is a very fancy place, but she has, lives in a little condo that's, that's mortgaged to the max. Uh, she comes from a very wealthy telecom family from the Midwest. And her parents were jet setters, they didn't work. They were socialites and jet setters. Her mom, she told me, spent $300,000 a year on dresses. She liked to be in women's wear daily. 
the, the father taught tennis to local kids that wherever they happened to be, whichever their estates they happened to be living at, there were seven or so of these estates fully staffed. She had a chauffeur taking her to her private school. But her parents were gone half the year. They traveled all the time. They kind of left her alone. The family never, ever ate. She said five times during her childhood did the family sit down and have dinner together. Um, she was basically raised by, you know, nannies and caregivers and, you know, all, all women of color uh, with, you know, not very well educated. And they, for when she was a little, when she was young, she said she didn't actually talk for a long time because no one was talking to her. <laughs> she, she was, there were no kids in her world. And they would go, one of the places they had an estate was on Fisher Island in Florida. It has like 42 super wealthy families living there. You can't even go there unless you're friends with one of those families. And, but it was all sort of big hoity-toity people. There were no children there. And then she would be chauffeured an hour and a half to her board, you know, her private school. 14, she sent off to boarding school. And her parents set her down. Say, we're giving you and your brother each a million dollars. This is 1965. That amount of money, if you put it in the S&P, would be worth 150 million today. Um, and of course, she didn't know. You know that was back when you know a millionaire was Thurston Howell III, you know, giving a fourteen-year-old yeah. a million bucks. And they said, "Well, you, we want you to do something. This money will accumulate till you're twenty-one, and then we want you to go and do something good with it, you know, for the community. Either it could be, but that could be starting a business, starting a nonprofit, giving your giving your money away to good causes, whatever. And so that kind of fueled her to go and become kind of a big, you know, a person who started creating women's foundations and doing all these things and essentially, eventually gave all her money away. She still gives all her money away. She acts as an advisor to wealthy families. She says she now makes about $140,000 a year, gives away 40 of it. Uh, when her mom died, she got a $40,000 a year, a year allowance from her mom's estate. She gives that away too. Uh, and because the way she grew up, she was miserable, awful, miserable, miserable. She was just depressed and isolated and lonely, and she hated her life uh, the way she was brought up. And you know, her parents were also would polish off two bottles of scotch a day, um, so that didn't help. Um, but you know, she said, giving away my money and creating, you know, finding happiness in the bonds of community and, and connection to people, that made me blissfully happy. And the money made me miserable. And so that's how she's lived her life. She's very inspirational. Um, you know, she actually goes, to, she kind of prompts families to give away more and keep less. Uh, does her best, but it's pretty hard. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to end on too hopeful a note. I don't believe in that. <laughs> But speaking of giving away a lot of money, there was one fact that really I don't think I'm going to be able to forget, which was um, the idea of the giving pledge and uh, that Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan have pledged to give away 99% of their Facebook fortune. So that sounds like a lot. What, what would that leave them with? M millions. Billions, actually. Uh, a billion. <laughs> Yeah, um, 
<laughs> according to you, at least, in your, right, because, your book, that because would leave them with 900 million bucks. Yeah, Facebook isn't their only asset. Right. Um, they own a lot of property, including hundreds of acres in Kauai, yeah. Hawaii. Right. Um, they, I mean, they bought tremendously expensive real estate in the Bay Area. Um, they also, you know, 1% of the Facebook fortune is a vast amount, and that's going to sit in trust and so forth and just keep growing and growing and growing. And, by, and, and they're, you know, pretty young. Yeah. By the time they're old, they're going to yeah. be back in the billions. And, and remember, that 99% is being given out over a long period. And, you know, I don't know how they're figuring. Is it 99%? Yeah, 99%. So, that 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 stock is going to be making money for them in the meantime. I mean, well, when, the first billion is always the toughest to make. Yeah, uh, it's true. <laughs> okay, my, so my let's, first billion certainly was. Let's take some questions um, here. We'll uh, and folks who are watching online, please chime in with comments. But does anyone have any questions for Michael? Ah. Um, thanks. This is great. Uh, this is like a very specific question, but it's come up. I feel like in conversations throughout my life, and no one seems to know the answer. How much money do I have? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but among like the very wealthy, what is their relationship with sort of like the petty bureaucracies we all have to deal with? So like getting your driver's license renewed at the DMV or these things. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah, I've heard. I actually, I looked. I remember looking that up once. Do billionaires have to go to the DMV to get their license? <laughs> I've got to think there's, they have a little private session somewhere. I mean, you know, you can actually go to AAA and it's a lot nicer. Just that's a little hint, but I, I'm sure they find the AAA office with one person and go in there with their, you know, with their bodyguards. Um, yeah, bureaucracy, you know, very wealthy families have what's called a family office. And I, I did a little, I, I asked, I posted on Facebook at one point, how many, just don't peek, how many of you ever heard of a family office? And the only people who said yes were lawyers. Family office is an LLC, a private company that very wealthy families set up just to manage all their affairs. And mostly to manage their investments, but also you know, to get, make sure that kids are educated and go to the right schools and hire people and fire people and deal with aircraft and boats and all the bureaucracy that wealth creates, actually, because, you know, in, in a way, at a, at a lower weather level of super wealth, your life becomes incredibly more complicated. At a higher level, you hire people to do it all for you. Um, and they might be stealing from you. That's what you got to worry about. Uh, but yeah, you, the, the nickel and diming doesn't happen. The things we all do, all the, the <coughs> little fees and things. You're you're in a realm where you don't have to deal with that. And also, if you want to borrow money, people throw money at you. I mean, you. I, I had a very wealthy real estate investor say to me, "It's easier for me to borrow 150 million dollars than it is for you to borrow 150 thousand." Ah, good question. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Thanks very much for a fascinating presentation. I, I wanted to ask. I mean. Presumably, um, the United States is getting, if people want to live in Sweden, but the United States is actually getting further and further away from it, at what point does this start to have wider political consequences, do you think? That is hard to say. I mean, when we have a French Revolution here, um, I don't know. Uh, but 
you know, we're not, last I checked, we're not supposed to be an aristocracy, or we're not supposed to have one, but we have one. And there's a lot of dynastic families now in this country, and they put a lot of money into politics and to influencing politics. And to the degree, you know, we've seen, it, we've seen this moment of potential great change be sort of squashed by, you know, Joe Manchin not going along because he's, you know, subservient to very wealthy interests, um, and others, you know, cinema. So, you know, um, I feel like more and more the political system is getting locked in, and it's getting harder and harder to change things to level the playing field. Um, it's going to take a real uprising. You know, it's, it's going to get take people saying, "Look, well, a it's going to you know, it's going to take wealthy people kind of." gaining some kind of conscience and saying this isn't right, uh, and, and actually stepping up and taking part in the revolution, so to speak. Uh, and it's also going to take a real upswelling of people who say, we're not going to support anymore the politicians who keep these things in play. But the trouble is, as we've seen, politicians are really good at you know, dividing people. And uh, you know, all the anger about wealth inequality, it's right wing, left wing, it's everywhere. But the anger is pointed in different directions, isn't it? So, I don't know. We have a question over there. Um. So, I was looking at how their wealth harms us all. Are you speaking uh, particularly uh, to the political thing that you're just talking about, or is there some other kind of harm from just the accumulation of wealth? That, I mean, that's one aspect of it. Um, you know, one part of my book, where I have a book specifically about <laughs> politics and political attitudes, and researchers have found that the political attitudes of the people that have access to power uh, and access to, you know, Congress and regulators and so forth, they have different, uh, different kinds of priorities for society than, than the general public does. And for one, they you know they tend to be socially liberal, but they're they are um, very much economically conservative when it comes to redistributing wealth in any way, uh, and they're also you know down on public education, which is a real problem because education is really one of the the only <laughs> one of the few paths to mobility in this country. Um, I mean, one of the reasons we put up with this stuff so much in America is because this what we call mobility optimism. We have this, there's these myths around you work hard, you put, you know, you dedicate yourself and you're gonna succeed. You know, that's the rags to riches stories are actually quite rare, but we fetishize them and we believe them so strongly that we don't rebel against, you know, the system as it is. Uh, Michael, we've been <laughs> seeing for the last couple of months uh, photographs of just enormous yachts owned by Russian oligarchs, um, just 200, 300 feet, multiple, like helicopter pads. It's <laughs> just incredible. We have a question from our online audience asking, what about all the ill-gotten wealth, like what we know has been seized from the Russians over the U Ukraine invasion? How much wealth is dirty is the simple question. That's a good question for Gabrielle Zuckman, who, who kind of studies wealth havens, among other things. Uh, I don't have any numbers at the, off the top of my head. Uh, I, you know, the, the fact is, I guess one surprising thing is 
there's, there's many ways to get wealth in ways that are ill-gotten, right? But you don't really have to because the laws are so permissive in this country. You can, you can accumulate massive wealth and protect it using these kinds of strategies, right. these legal strategies. You don't have to break the law. But, but you know, actually, interestingly, there's a lot of very high income people who don't file taxes, they just don't pay their taxes. And the IRS is, has been so gutted that half of these cases just fall off. They pass the statute of limitations. Yeah, I mean, one of the lessons of the recent ProPublica reporting is how many of the wealthiest Americans pay absolutely zero in federal income taxes. This is something I happen to know a lot about because I wrote an awful lot about Donald Trump not paying taxes. Um, and, um, and one of the lessons that, uh, I mean, this is something that, uh, and Trump, by the way, had grats and grits and gruts out the wazoo. Um, but one of the things that, 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 that makes it so difficult for the IRS is this fundamental mismatch between the resources of the IRS and the, just the maddening complexity of these different um, tax shelters that only a tiny fraction of people in the world can actually understand. Right. I the like joke in New York City is that like, <clears throat> all the best lawyers in New York City are tax uh, in the state <laughs> lawyers. Yeah. They make absolutely the most money of any of the lawyers in New York City. I like to say that the boredom is the point. The point. Okay. I mean, the, these rules are so arcane and so eye-glazing mm -hmm. that you know even a well-educated journalist has trouble understanding yeah. them, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was recently a bill passed called the Secure 2.0 Act, which was expands government subsidies for retirement savings, mm -hmm. and it was passed overwhelmingly, it was like 400 something to four, um, easily passed through Congress. And most of the provisions in this bill, although they sound kind of nice and middle classy, are actually helping the right. rich. Yeah. Um, the United States spends one point, well, it spends about $380 million, billion dollars, sorry, a year subsidizing retirement savings. And the overwhelming majority of those subsidies go to the top 10% and of course exponentially as you get to the top. And so, you know, you're, you've got guys with hundreds of millions and billions of dollars sitting in a Roth IRA and they're still being subsidized by the public. By the public, it's, yeah. It's just real misallocation of resources. I think we might have time for one more question. I see two, I have two questions. Well, let's not leave anyone hanging. Let's go for... Hi, uh, Michael. I, I'm very interesting. I want to revisit what you talked about, the law of diminishing returns as far as wealth goes. And that number you came up with was between what and what was that? Well, there's different measures. One is for positive emotions, one's for negative emotions, sort of the inverse satiation point. So the, the positive emotions peak at 65,000, negative ones bottom out at 95,000, and then life satisfaction peaks at 105,000. Perfect for the journalism school. Uh, yeah. uh, that being said, um, is there a similar study, or have you found something in your work that might? You talked about the poor little rich children that had so much wealth that they were miserable about it. Is there a number where you want to leave something for your kids that'll make that will make them happy, but not too much to make them miserable? 
There's a, there's a guy um, uh, in my book called Richard Watts, who's a conciliary for some of the wealthiest families in America. I mean, his average client is between 100 million billion dollars. After that, he says, do you have your own family office? You don't need me. Um, and people, and he's also written a couple of books about, you know, one called Entitled Mania, right? He says, I try to convince my clients, why not just give them five million each and call it good? And he says, people are so reluctant to do that. They say, how can we just be rid of all this money? And he says, well, you're going to be rid of it in three generations anyway. And you're going to destroy some of them in the process. Well, you got, you got five mil? <laughs> um, five million in this day, I, I, I don't know what the, I can't give it any, you know, it, it's specific to one's circumstances, but five million bucks, you know, a divorce will take half of that. Um, some bad medical procedure will take a chunk of that. You know, a house in the Bay Area will take a couple million of that. <laughs> so, so we have one last question, I think. Hi. Um, in my regrettably extensive time on Gen Z Twitter, um, <laughs> um, there seems to be two sides of a coin, one being this kind of gross fetishization of Bezos and Musk and Zuckerberg, but also this increasingly progressive vision of wealth distribution, redistribution, I should say. So where do you see the conversation going, um, and potentially politically as well, um, with what we're discussing and going forward? Well, you know, things are pretty up in the air right now with the, the row leak and the midterms, which are looking bad for Democrats, but who knows whether the row thing is going to change that. Um, as long as the Republicans are in power, you're not going to get much in the way of wealth distribution, period. It's, in fact, it may go more the other way. Um, I mean, the, the Biden administration, to its credit, has been trying. They've been trying to put the, you know, they, they tried to kill grats. Uh, they tried to change the step up rule, which basically says that uh, when your parent dies and gives you stock, the stock resets its value to today's market price, meaning all of the, all of the stock that they kept their whole lives, they don't pay any capital gains taxes on it. Um, you know, he's, you know, and the, the but child family that went tax absolutely rate. nowhere. But yeah, these Those things got stripped out. They, they were put in some early language and they got stripped. Right yeah, out. less than about five seconds. Right, um, and you know, part of the problem is there's a lot of wealthy Democrats who want to keep these things in place too. Uh, we are, you know, we're partially governed by our ideology. We're partially governed by our self-interest, and to the extent that there's a lot of very wealthy people. Just in fact, if you look at the top donors to the political parties, you know they're mostly all billionaires. They're pretty pretty evenly split between Democrat and Republican, and unlike they used to give to both parties, now they give only to one. So we got our billionaires, and they got their billionaires, right? Um, no, I don't. I'm I'm not too optimistic about the wealth. You know, any of these. There's been the several. You know billionaire tax proposals come up. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Warren's the one that, who was it? Is it Wyden? No. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, one of these guys put it forth recently. I mean, it's been killed twice They already. They put it forward. I'm just saying that they go absolutely nowhere. Um, yeah, because Manchin yeah. says, I don't want anything right. to do with it. You know? yeah. 
Well, on that really cheerful note, <laughs> thank you all so much for being here. Thank you, Michael Mechanic, for coming and talking about this fabulous book that you've written on a really, really important topic. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>